Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men pursuing faith, character, personal growth, and meaningful friendships. If you'd like to learn more about us and our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. We hope you enjoy this lesson from our series called Genesis, Why Is It This Way? So I'm curious, uh, do we have any Notre Dame fans in the audience? Go Irish. All right. So tonight, we're going to make a little heart of a man history because I'm going to start the lecture with a quote by legendary coach Lou Holtz. Uh, Lou Holtz won a national championship with Notre Dame in 1988, coached college football for 34 years. So he knew a lot about winning and losing, and he knew a lot about character as well. And given that experience, Lou Holtz made this, this statement. He said, winners embrace hard work. They love the discipline of it and the trade-off that they're making to win. Losers, on the other hand, see it as punishment, and that's the difference. Let me repeat that. Winners embrace hard work. They love the discipline of it, the trade-off they're making to win. Losers, on the other hand, see it as punishment, and that's the difference. As we continue to follow Jacob's journey tonight, there is so much we can learn. But as I studied this passage, guys, the one thing that kept speaking to me in terms of what can I apply, what can I actually apply to my life is the importance of embracing discipline and doing hard things. Don't hear me wrong. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are all winners. And I'm not trying to distinguish who out here is a winner or loser when it comes to following Jesus. What I am saying and what we're going to see clearly in tonight's lesson is that for us to be the men that God has called us to be is going to require a great deal of discipline, both our own self-discipline and the discipline that God puts on our lives as well. As you leave here tonight, here's my hope. My hope is that you will be inspired to see, to embrace discipline and to do the hard work that is required to be the man that God has called you to be and that your family desperately needs you to be. Will you join me in prayer? Father God, Lord, thank you so much. Thank you that you love us, Lord, that you have made us winners because of what Jesus did on the cross, Lord. How awesome is that? Our victory is secure. And yet, Lord, we have a battle here, and we need your help, Lord. We need discipline. We need to do the hard things. And Lord, we can't do that on our own. I can't do it. I need the Holy Spirit, and I think these men all need the Holy Spirit as well. So God, would you just fill us tonight, Lord? I pray that you would allow your Holy Spirit to speak through me. I pray that these guys could be encouraged, challenged, and that maybe we can go out and just be a little bit more motivated tomorrow to do the hard thing, to be more disciplined, to love our wives better, whatever it is that you're calling us to, Lord, because we want to honor you with our lives. So just be with us tonight, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, as we begin chapter 29, we get the sense that Jacob is operating with a renewed enthusiasm here. Recall, he had just had a personal encounter with God, and God spoke directly to him in a dream, and he had told him that he was going to bless him with offspring, he would give him the land where he was sleeping, and that he was going to be with him and make sure that everything happened until Jacob had received all of God's promises. Think about what Jacob must have been experiencing and feeling in that moment at the end of chapter 28. 
He surely had great excitement and anticipation for what lie ahead. And for the first 22 verses of, of chapter 29, things couldn't have played out a whole lot better for Jacob. He continued his journey until he came to a well with some sh uh, shepherds there. And he found out not only was he in the land that he was looking for, but the shepherds actually knew his uncle Laman. And what was even better is that Laban's daughter, Rachel, was coming with the sheep. And when Rachel arrives with the sheep, things get even better for Jacob. Because as we read later, she was beautiful in form and appearance. At that point, Jacob decides to do what every man, especially John Evans, would do. He shows off his muscles by moving the rock and watering the sheep. He then introduces himself, and Rachel responds by running to get her father, and there's a beautiful family reunion that's filled with joy and laughter and thanksgiving. After a month, Laban and Jacob strike a deal that Jacob will continue to work for Laban for seven years in exchange for being able to marry this beautiful woman, Rachel. While many of us read that and say, wow, that's a long time, we're told that for Jacob, that seven years seemed only as though it was a few days because he loved her so much. At this point, Jacob must have been thinking he won the lottery, right? Or maybe a better description would be that God was truly coming through for him in ways that even Jacob couldn't have imagined. Think about it. At this stage in the story, he seemingly got away with everything he had done to his brother Esau. God appeared to him and promised him offspring, land, and to be with him. He found his family, and now he is on the cusp of marrying a beautiful girl who he is deeply in love with. I mean, Jacob's got to be on top of the world, right? Before we go on, I want us to pause and ask, what's missing from this section of the story? It may not be clear at first, but think about what God has done for Jacob at this point, and yet, nowhere do we see that Jacob is responding to or seeking God's direction since he built that altar at Bethel. Compare just a minute Jacob's path for finding a wife with that of what Abraham did when he was helping Isaac find a wife. If you weren't here last session, you need to go back to Genesis 24 and read through that, and all this stuff will come together. But for now, just listen to these words that was spoken by Abraham's servant as he searched for Isaac's wife in Genesis 24, verse 12 through 14. It says this, And he, the servant, said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show me steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar of water that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master." What a contrast, guys. Abraham's servant recognized the magnitude of what lies ahead. And he responds with what? He responds with humility. He is purposeful and he is prayerful, even to the point of asking a specific reason that God would show to point out who Isaac is supposed to marry. 
I wonder how many of us are living exactly like Jacob is in that, at this moment in the story. We believe in God. We know his promises. And yet each day we get up and we make our own decisions. We determine our own plans and we design lives that will give us prosperity and comfort. And as God blesses us, what happens? We actually get further and further away from God because life gets better and better and more and more comfortable. Jacob never stops to seek God's guidance and ask him to direct his steps. And as we will see, that lack of discipline is gonna cost him dearly. Guys, what decision are you leaving God out of tonight? Where are you pursuing your desires, your plans, your vision for worldly success, all while leaving God in the background? In Ephesians 6.18, Paul implores us, he says this, pray at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication. Martin Luther said this, he said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. What is one thing you can do to strengthen your prayer life this week? One thing. Guys, make a plan. When we make a plan, it happens. When we don't make a plan, nothing changes. So strengthen your prayer plan, your prayer, prayer life. Make a plan and make it happen. Back to our story where suddenly this is quite a turn of events in verse 23. When Laban does the old switcheroo, when he swaps out the oldest daughter, Leah, for Rachel on the wedding night. Jacob wakes up the next morning in shock to see he has married Leah and not Rachel. He confronts Laban, and they agree that Jacob can have Rachel for another seven years of labor after he completes the first week with Leah. I know there's a lot of questions about how all this happens. Bill assured me afterwards that if you email him later, he'll explain how all this happens, okay? So I, I, I'm not going to go into that tonight. So email Bill. All right, so the story reveals two principles that still clearly apply to us today. The first lesson we need to see is simple, and yet it's an essential truth, and that is this. You reap that which you sow. To this point in his life, Jacob has sowed deception, and for the first time in his life, he experienced the bitter taste of being deceived. Consider the irony of the way in which Jacob has deceived and now he gets deceived. Listen to a couple of these guys. Jacob deceived his father. He is deceived by his father-in-law. Jacob deceived to get a birthright. He is now deceived by the rights of the firstborn daughter to be first in marriage. Jacob deceived his blind father. Jacob is deceived in the darkness of night. Not only did Jacob sow deceit, but his deception led to a great deal of relational turmoil for his family. And as we will see in the second half of this story tonight, he is going to reap a great deal of relational turmoil and dysfunction in his own family. Men, the Bible is clear on this. We reap what we sow. Galatians 7, 6, 7 through 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, from, him, from his flesh will reap corruption. But to the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Proverbs 22.8 says, Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. And Proverbs 11.18 says, The wicked earns deceptive wages, 
but one who sows righteousness gets sure reward. In 2 Corinthians 9.16, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Guys, the truth of sowing and reaping convicted me this week as I thought about my wife, Jenny, and the spirit within our home. I've been frustrated at times the past few weeks because of some tension and misunderstandings that we've had. And this truth of reaping what we sow hit hard because as much as I wanted to blame Jenny, it's on me. I'm the one who over the past couple of weeks, as I started thinking about it, you know what I've sowed? I've sowed selfishness, short responses to questions, lack of vulnerability, and quite honestly, I've not invested the time and attention that Jenny deserves. So is it any surprise that for the, there have been moments of distance, disagreements, and even some anger with each other? Of course not. We reap what we sow, and when I don't sow love into my marriage, is it any surprise that I don't reap love back? What about you guys? What about you? What are you sowing into those closest to you with your words and with your actions that you will one day reap as a harvest? But there's another part to this sowing and reaping thing, and that's what we allow to get sowed into our own hearts and into our own minds. So what about your thoughts, guys? What are you sowing into your own mind? Or what are you allowing to be sown in there? What are you thinking about during the day? What are you watching on TV at, lot, at night? What are you listening to? What are you reading? Romans 8, 5 through 6 is so convicting, guys. It says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on flesh leads to what? It leads to death. But to set the mind on the Spirit leads to life and peace. Who doesn't want life and peace, guys? If you want life and peace, Scripture's clear. Set your minds on things of the Spirit. Get those things sown in there. So here's my challenge, guys. Pay attention to what you are sowing in the people around you and pay attention to what you're allowing to be sown into your heart and mind. There's another truth here that I want us to look at as it relates, and it relates to God's discipline. Yes, Jacob is reaping what he sowed, but at the same time, God is using people and circumstances as a means of discipline to prepare Jacob for what God has planned for him in the future. Now, some of us are going to have an immediate negative reaction to the thought of God disciplining us. For many of us, discipline is associated with punishment. If you do something wrong, you are disciplined by being punished. This creates a perception of discipline being punitive. That, however, is not what God intends his discipline to be, nor is it how we should view discipline with our family, our friends, or those we lead. Guys, godly discipline, and I would argue all discipline, is intended to help us grow and mature. It is meant for our good, for our benefit. And as Christians, it's meant to make us more like Jesus Christ. Many people mistake discipline with judgment or condemnation, but that is not what the Bible teaches. Are there consequences for our sins? Absolutely, yes, there are. 
Think about it. If there were no consequences, then why would we we'd just sin? There's no consequence. There is consequence. But in Romans 8.1, we are told, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why does God discipline us? Why is he disciplining Jacob? Scripture actually gives us some clear answers here. First is Hebrews 12, 5 through 7. And in Hebrews 12, 5 through 7, we read this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Not, uh, do not be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, been in, that you have to endure. God is teaching you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So God disciplines us because we, he loves us. And we see another reason for God's discipline just a couple verses later in Hebrews 12, 10, where he says, for they, referring to earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, referring to God, disciplined us for our good that we may share in his holiness. God's discipline is not condemnation, guys. It's not condemnation. It is meant, it is a means by which God is trying to move us closer to his holiness. And it is actually a part of our sanctification process. So what are the takeaways? What do we, what do we learn from observing God's discipline with Jacob? First, I think we need to all examine our own lives and ask, where may God be disciplining me? Difficult circumstances and suffering in our lives happen for a variety of reasons, but it's important to consider that God may be using it for discipline in some way. Second, as crazy as this seems, when we recognize where God is disciplining us, we should respond with joy and worship. Why? Because again, it's a, as you just heard, this is a sign that God loves you and that he's moving you towards holiness. It's a beautiful thing. So what person, circumstance, or experience might God be using to discipline you tonight? Again, doing this lesson convicted me because I started to look at difficult situations in my life a little bit differently. A difficult conversation at work. Some misunderstandings with Jenny. My parents have some failing health. All of these took on a different perspective when I just thought about it from the lens of how might God be disciplining me and how might he be wanting me to grow from these experiences? So where might he be working in your life tonight as well? All right, guys, in the final section of scripture here that we're gonna look at tonight, we read that Jacob's children are being born. And while these sons are a fulfillment of God's prop, promise and ultimately will become the 12 tribes of Israel, we see the impact Jacob's passivity and lack of leadership as a husband has on his family. While a delicate subject today, we're not afraid at heart of a man to step into delicate subjects. And so, guys, we got to know this. The Bible is clear that God has assigned the responsibility of family leadership to husbands. There is not, this is not a lordship or an oppressive type of leadership. Rather, it is servanthood type of leadership that is modeled after Christ. 
Ephesians 5, 21 through 24 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Furthermore, Colossians 3, 18 through 19, we read, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Men, we are responsible for the vision and direction of our families. And any time that we fail to step into that leadership role, we are abandoning our God-given responsibility. We are the thermostat for, the fam- for our families. We are not the thermometer. We set the temperature. We don't measure the temperature. Now, I know that not everyone in here is married, and that's okay. Some of you who are not married are actually the de facto leaders of your family. Most of you who are not married will one day be married, and I cannot underestimate the importance of preparing yourself for the role of marriage. I got married when I was 41 years old. I thought I was prepared. But to quote Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. (laughs) Now, Marriage is fantastic. And if Jenny ever sees this, I love you, babe. All right? Marriage is fantastic. And I'm so thankful for Jenny. But marriage will throw you some punches, guys. It's going to throw you some punches. And you can't wait until that moment to figure out how to respond. The Navy SEALs have a saying. It says, we don't rise to the occasion. It says, we sink to the level of our training. So let's look at some, some specific ways that we're called to lead and examine how Jacob failed and how we can train to be, do better, guys. First, we're called to love unconditionally. Ephesians 5.25, that same Ephesians passage says this later. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ's love was unconditional, guys, and our love for our wives must be unconditional as well. Our wives should never have to earn our love. And yet, when we read about Leah's naming of her first four sons, it's clear that she felt that she needed to earn Jacob's love. Whether Leah was who he intended to marry or not, it doesn't matter. Jacob should have loved her and given her the attention and affection and adoration that she deserved. I think many of our wives would say that, we don't always, that they don't always feel loved by us either. And oftentimes, I think it's because we take our wives for granted. I know that I wrestle with that, guys. I can focus on work. I can focus on my friends. I can focus on heart of a man because I know that Jenny is still gonna always be there. How messed up is that, guys? The number one earthly relationship that God gives us, and I have a tendency to put that on the back seat sometimes. Mm, Not good, guys. A great way to make your wife feel loved is to leave her notes expressing the things you love and appreciate about her. I encourage you to try it this week. A second way that we are called to lead is with gentleness and humility. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her as the weaker vessel, for they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Unfortunately, we don't see Jacob do this with Leah or Rachel either. In the first few verses of chapter 30, we see that Rachel blames Jacob 
for her barrenness, and Jacob, in turn, blames God. Jacob doesn't try to listen to Rachel. He doesn't try to understand Rachel. He doesn't try to hear her heart. Instead, he just exasperates the situation by blaming God. Third, to lead well, we need wisdom, guys. Proverbs 24, 3 through 4 says, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Apparently, Jacob missed the importance of this because he only creates more friction and more dysfunction when he agrees to sleep with both of his wives' servants. And while that may have been culturally acceptable back then, guys, here's, we cannot, we cannot let culture determine what is right and wrong. God determines what is right and wrong, and he gives us the instruction manual right here in the Bible in Jacob's case, he should have learned from the mess that his grandpa Abe had and made when he slept with Sarah's servant, Hagar. We need wisdom, guys. Final responsibility I want to point out tonight in this observation about Jacob is our call as husbands to pray for our wives. I know I touched on prayer earlier, but I just think this is so important, guys. Colossians 1, 9 through 10 says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Men, if there is one thing you must do for your wife every day, it is to pray for her. It's not hard, guys. It's not hard. You just have to be intentional about it and you have to desire what's best for your wife. And yet, just as Jacob seemingly never prayed for wisdom in terms of searching for a wife, neither does he seem to ever pray for them once they're married. Guys, godly leadership in our home rejects comfort, ease, and selfishness. It rejects those things. All the things the world says, comfort, ease, selfishness, Godly leadership rejects those things and instead it embraces courage, sacrifice, and servant leadership. Where is God calling you to step up as a leader of your family tonight? And what is preventing you from being the spiritual leader in your home? I know this isn't easy, guys. I know some of your family situations are hard, and if so, here's my encouragement. Get some brothers around you to help process it, talk about, encourage you. Consider investing in some counseling with your wife to create space for safe conversation. It's hard, but here's the reality, guys. We can make excuses or we can make progress, but we can't make both. And for those of you who are single, don't believe for one second that you're going to automatically become this strong, godly leader of your family the day that you get married if you're not already practicing these disciplines in your own life that you will one day need when you get married. Guys, I'm not standing up here like I got this all figured out. I think I've shared that with you tonight a little bit already, right? In full confession, I'll give you one more. I want to be a better leader for Jenny this year. In fact, for my life plan for this year, I said the one relationship I had to improve in 2024 is with Jenny. I've got all the excuses too, 
But when I see how Jacob's passivity and his lack of personal discipline impacted his family, I'm convicted it's time for me to stop making excuses and start making some progress. Men, let me be clear. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're a winner. We won, guys. Like, we won. There's not winners and losers in here. We all won because of what Jesus did on the cross. Victory secure. But when I think about what Jesus did for me to make me a winner, when I think about him dying on the cross, perfectly innocent to pay the penalty for my sin, then my only response is one of wanting to honor him. And the way we do that, men, is by working our tails off. We work our tails off to become character-driven, disciplined disciples of Jesus who are leading our families, our friends, and in our community toward Jesus Christ. So men, let's embrace discipline, do the hard work, and be the men that God is calling us to be and the families, the leaders of our family that they desperately need. Would you pray with me? Father God, I love these men. I'm so glad, Lord, that they sacrificed a couple hours on their Tuesday, drove through rain and fog to come here to study the Bible, to be together, to be in fellowship. God, I'm humbled to stand up here and talk. God, I don't have this figured out. I don't think anybody in this room has it figured out. We're trying, Lord. Help us. We need your Holy Spirit. God, we can't do it. But God, our heart's desire is to. And Lord, if there's a guy in here tonight whose heart isn't sure if he has that desire, God, I pray that you would work in it right now, that you would draw that man's heart to you. Because Lord, what you've done on the cross should only motivate us and help us to respond with a desire tomorrow to be the best men that we can be, to be disciplined, to do the hard work, and to honor you and to point people to Jesus. So God, help these men do that tomorrow. Help them to do it tonight when they go home, Lord. And I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.